For the past few months, we essentially have been sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words, hearing this great announcement about the kingdom of God, of what God is up to in the world and this new people that he is creating and who they include and who they honor and how they behave. And if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that a lot of what Jesus is saying is counterintuitive and it's paradoxical. And it can feel like he's turning everything upside down because that is precisely what God is doing in this kingdom that we find is at hand. And so a lot of this feels opposite of everything that we've ever known and how we've experienced the world to work. And so all that to say, it's supposed to be disorienting. It really is. It should be challenging. I mean, it should cause us at times to ask, like, did he just say that? You know, did, did Jesus really mean that? And, and if so, what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for us as this new community that God is unleashing into the world? So at times it should feel like he's changing everything because in a very real way, he is. I don't know if you've ever done like a major construction project in your house. You know, one of those that ends up taking way longer than you thought it would. It's way more expensive. It's really, really messy. We had a, a pretty bad basement flooding that happened several years ago. In our basement, we had a living room, my office, an extra bedroom, a laundry room, a bathroom, and our sump pump went out during a really heavy rainfall. And it just destroyed the basement. And as we were ripping things out, we realized we had foundation issues. We called in a foundation company and they actually told us it's too far gone. We can't help you. You need to hire a mason. And so we did. We actually hired four masons, a team of four that came in and they actually had to take a jackhammer to our entire basement, uh, put our house on stilts, blow out the walls and then lay brand new brick all the way around to be load-bearing walls that the house could then sit on. <laughs> and uh, man, it was it was a mess. I mean, we're talking a thick layer of dust was over everything in our house uh, for months. And for weeks, we were coughing up dust. Uh, our eyes were burning. It was It was an absolute mess. And anytime you do a major remodeling project, you know... It is messy and it is painful, especially if you're living there while you're doing it. And you got to know what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in the Beatitudes that he kicks it off with, is he is doing a major remodeling project that is intensely personal. He's coming into our world where we live, into our homes, into our lives, and he is remodeling. He's blowing out walls. He's taking a jackhammer to the things that needs to go. And he's laying a brand new foundation. It's, it's a complete overhaul. He's changing the world. And if we let him, he is changing our world. Right? He's reshaping the way we understand what it means to be human and what it looks like to live with God in this world that he is reclaiming, reshaping, redeeming, remodeling, and reconciling back to himself.
In the last beatitude we looked at, Jesus addresses this issue of justice. And he says these words. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the world to be made right, for they will be satisfied. Right? In other words, everything that we just said about God reclaiming and redeeming this world, it's coming. Justice is coming. And I think it's something that we all long for. And then Jesus follows it up with these words. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Now, one of the interesting things about mercy is I think all of us, regardless of where you fall on the spiritual spectrum, all of us can agree that mercy is a virtue. I mean, just a, a month or two ago, Jackson and I were out boating with a single dad and his two boys from our neighborhood, brand new to Knoxville, doesn't self-identify as a Christian. Uh, I think Jesus to him is kind of like Gandhi, like a great teacher, a great human, but nothing more than that. And this is a guy who has spent a good chunk of his adult life over 11 years in prison. And so he's had a, a hard go and he's living a really great story, but he's not a Christian. But what's interesting is we're hanging out on the lake and uh, we're driving back later that day and this topic of mercy comes up. You know, he's telling this redemptive story that he's living and the mercy that he's received that he doesn't really deserve. And me as a self-identifying follower of Jesus, him, uh, irreligious, not a self-identifying follower of Jesus, both of us can agree that mercy is a beautiful thing, it's a good thing, and we want it. So why can't all of us just agree that mercy is a virtue, we should be merciful, all right, let's all go do that. Let's all go be merciful people and call it good. Well, I think there's a couple pretty substantial obstacles to this that make living this out really, really hard. And the first one resides outside of us. And the second one has to do with that which is inside of us. So let's begin by talking about that which is outside of us. And I'm talking about the world in which we live and the cultural waters in which we swim every day. Uh, I would suggest to you that we live in a particular time and place and culture that is full of outrage and short on mercy. Uh, ours has been called a time of outrage. We are people of outrage. I mean, the volume has got turned up so much in recent years that it has made being a public figure or leader or pastor, any kind of person uh, that is out in the public sphere and responsible for leading others, it has made it so incredibly hard. I mean, my particular sphere is minist the ministry world. Uh, I've been a pastor for a long time, have a lot of friends in ministry, and I've just, I've never seen so many of them tired and so many of them leaving vocational ministry. For many, they just found that trying to keep people together and merciful towards one another, like keep them together with a posture of mercy in the way that we treat one another has proven to be just about an impossible task. And many are, are just walking away. They can't do it anymore. Um, and I mean, if you take a, let's just say, for example, if you take a public stand on race, even when there is an example where there's a blatant misuse of power by, let's just say, for example, an armed white police officer and an unarmed person of color, maybe even a minor, maybe a child. If you speak up on that in the public sphere, uh, there will be people that you get accused of being woke. People leave your church, you get hate mail. 
And if you don't address it from the pulpit, right, there will be some who say, oh, you must be racist. You must be a bigot. Uh, during COVID, if you were a pastor, another example, if you were a pastor, you couldn't win no matter what you did. I mean, I'm so thankful I, I'm not responsible for trying to lead a large church, but those poor guys, I mean, if you suspended gatherings, you were accused of living in fear. If you didn't suspend gatherings, you were accused of being reckless. <laughs> or if you got it right in some dies of some the first time and you did suspend gatherings, but you started them up too soon, uh, you were accused of not caring enough about human life. I mean, no matter what your stance was on masks, it was wrong and people were angry. Uh, no matter your stance on vaccines, it was wrong and people were angry. Uh, and of course, politics, wherever you fall politically, I mean, which is stirring up a lot of this, um, it's brutal, right? You talk about politics and you, and you get slayed. You don't talk about politics, you get accused. Um, man, you think about the way that media functions now. It used to be, uh, I'm going to sound like an old man here, <laughs> in my day, uh, it used to be that there were only a couple primary sources where most people got their news. And so generally, those sources, they tried to be more moderate in order to serve and attract the broadest audience possible. That's how you succeeded. That's how you got money. That was the goal. That's not the case anymore, right? I mean, outrage sells. And, and the more you can stir up the emotion of one side against the other, uh, the more clicks, the more likes, the more advertising dollars, the more views, the better ratings that you get, right? You, you go to you go to Fox News, for example, you go to CNN or you go to MSNBC, and you're essentially, you're all, we're always hearing the same message, but it's coming from different sides that, that we're right, they're wrong, we're trying to protect this nation, all it stands for, and those people are trying to destroy it from the inside out. I mean, you listen to every bill, every proposal, every day from those in D.C., it's, uh, they're, you're a bigot, you're a snowflake, you're greedy, you're reckless, you don't care about people's rights, you don't care about the lives of others. I mean, it, we live in a culture that's just so wound up, so divided, so charged all the time with this sense of self-righteousness and this constant finger pointing at the other people for all the problems of this world. And what we get from that is all this vitriol and polarization and division. And in that culture, man, mercy can be really hard to come by. And the thing is, over time, as you're swimming in that water and you're hearing that message and that tone is always in the background and that posture is constantly being modeled by the people around us, is this shapes us over time. It does. And so for many of us, we need to be reshaped. Because uh, if we're not immersing our person in the name of Jesus, these are the waters that are making us who we are. But the second challenge, the second obstacle, is even harder than the first one. And that is not what is outside of us, but what is inside of us. I mean, the hard truth that I think that many of us don't want to admit is that the reason our culture is this way is because in many moments on many days, we're this way. I mean, we are since the fall wired to be judging machines. 
you know, when God told Adam and Eve, hey, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't think it's that God is anti-wisdom or anti-information. I think he just knew what we would do with that information, right? He knows that we don't have the capacity to sit in judgment over people and love them at the same time as God does. And so we default to becoming judging machines. Uh, Part of that is because it makes us feel better about ourselves. We can actually prove this neurologically now. Every time, every time that we pass judgment over some person or some group of people that we disagree with, and we're convinced that we're in the right camp, they're in the wrong camp, your brain gets a little shot of chemicals that feels really, really good. And one of the dirty little secrets in all of this is that one of the easiest places for this judgment mentality to just rampantly continue to exist and even thrive is in religious people and religious communities. In fact, I bet there's a number of you listening to this right now, and you have stories, don't you? Like scars. Maybe it feels still like a wound. Times in which you needed mercy. You longed for mercy, but what you got from people who claimed to be God's people was anything but. It's judgment. It was condemnation. It was finger pointing. Maybe you were ostracized, condemned, maybe even expelled from community and fellowship. Like it happens all the time. It's heartbreaking, but you know, there's actually entire religious organizations and movements, and sadly, some of them in the name of Jesus, that are built on entire systems of judgment and this superiority complex. You know, and I think maybe we struggle with, well, why is that? How is that? I think for some, it's the very same reason that news outlets do it and politicians do it and political parties do it. And that is because it is, it's just frankly easier, easier to rally people around something they're against than something they're for. And I know that's not always true, but man, that's true a lot of the time because to do that requires almost no personal introspection, no repentance, no personal change, no personal sacrifice. Instead, you just focus on that other person, that other group, and how wrong they are in light of how right your group is, and you're off and running. And this is what we might call a posture of judgment. And it's one that I think we don't even realize we're doing oftentimes as long as we're convinced that we're right. This, by the way, is how mobs are formed. And this is how people and entire groups of people end up violating their own beliefs and values for the cause. Because this is what a posture of judgment creates. There's this moment in the life of Jesus where he picks up on the fact that this very thing is going on in the religious community around him. And suffice to say, Jesus has some pretty strong words to say about it. This is what we read. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. All right, so here's the picture. We got two men standing before God and they could not be more different than one another. One is the epitome of religious devotion. He's got rules for his rules, boundaries for his boundaries. He just think about the most religiously devoted person you've ever known and multiply it. And that's this guy. And the other 
Couldn't be more different. He is the epitome of greed and self-indulgence. He is living the high life. His pockets are full with cash that he got in a dishonest and twisted way. Those are the two pictures here. And we read this. The Pharisee, he stood by himself and he prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Thieves, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. For I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. (laughs) Very easy to judge this guy's prayer. But let's just get something a little humbling out on the table. Uh, This guy, when it comes to outward acts of devotion, probably shames most all of us. Uh, You know, I don't know you. uh, Maybe you don't really know me just yet. But I know statistically, we know that the average church-going evangelical gives just about 3% of their income to charitable causes every year, which, depending on which study you look at, is the same or actually less than their unbelieving neighbors, right? So we're talking that's a steaming pile of hypocrisy, uh, does not speak well of us. But you look at this Pharisee, uh, he's tithing a lot more than that. And he's giving above and beyond alms to the poor. Uh, we know the average, I mean, I don't know how many times you fast a week, but the average churchgoer does not fast. <laughs> it's not a regular part of their life. This guy's twice a week is absolving from food, staying away from it, replacing that time with prayer uh, and reflection, reminding his body how much his whole person needs God in the same way that his body needs food, right? And so he's he is he puts a lot of us to shame and he's being called out by Jesus right here. So if God is looking for more items on our spiritual checklist, if that is how we're made right with God, we are in trouble. Because our faithfulness compared to his probably looks most days a little lazy, a little half-hearted, a little apathetic, maybe non-committal, or just plain embarrassing. Let's just get that on the table. And he apparently is aware of this on some level. Because his prayer is, thank God I'm not like that guy. I'm not a willfully blatant evildoer. Uh, I'm not sleeping around on my spouse. I mean, look at that guy. What a spiritual loser. Can't believe he'd even show up around here. He is soiling the house of God with his presence. Thank you, God, I'm not like that. That's essentially his prayer. The tax collector, however, the tax collector, we're told, stood at a distance. And he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And again, perhaps worthwhile to note that the Pharisee wasn't entirely wrong. In his conclusions about this guy, he is a swindler. He is a cheat. He's living off the fat of oppression with his tw- in a twisted partnership with Rome. Uh, he's living large. I mean, while the Pharisee is fasting and praying, this guy is out partying. I mean, they spend their Friday nights very, very differently. And man, the, the Jesus' audience, I mean, they get this picture far more clearly than you and I do because they didn't, these weren't just caricatures to them. They knew these types. They knew these people. They had faces and names. And so you you imagine the emotional state, what the audience expects for Jesus to say, oh man, he's going to lay the hammer down on this tax collector and celebrate the holiness or righteousness of the Pharisee. But 
Suffice to say, that's not what Jesus does. In fact, what he's about to say is going to blow their minds. This is what we read. I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the religiously devoted, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So how are we doing with that? I mean, Jesus is saying some downright stunning things here. I mean, what he just proclaimed should offend every religious sensibility that you and I have. In fact, forget religion for a moment. This should offend our sense of justice and fairness, shouldn't it? It's not fair, right? It doesn't seem right. Right To religious people, this is frustrating. In fact, it might even make you angry. So let's dial into this a little bit more. Uh, Robert Capon, one of my favorite authors and theologians, uh, he, he in his, one of his books asks this question. All right, so the playboy, the swindler, he goes home justified. Well and good, you might say. Yes, indeed. But let me just... Let's just follow him now for the coming week. And let's just say for the next week, uh, what, what do you want to see him doing with his time, like in his life? Right? He just went home justified. God has just pronounced him forgiven. He's been blessed. What do you want to see in his life? <laughs> Don't you want to see like some reform, right? Some, some repentance or some fruit from repentance, you know? Uh, what do you want to see? You want to see him uh, giving some of that money maybe to the poor, maybe to the work of the temple. Uh, you want to see him maybe spending some more time in prayer. Uh, you want to see him maybe visiting the temple more than just once a week or however often he comes, once a month, once a quarter, once a year, who knows. Uh, you want to see him change the way that he spends his Friday nights, the way he treats people. You want to see him cut off that partnership with Rome. I mean, you start to make a list, right? Because uh, he just got grace on the front end, so what's coming on the back end? Surely, if if the he's been justified for real, we're going to see some change. But let's just say, one week later, that same tax collector, after a life of partying and swindling and spending and drinking and whatever else, goes back to the temple in the same condition, just as broken, just as lost, just as selfish just as sinful, and he prays the same prayer. And God answers him in the same way. Now, how does that make you feel? Right? Isn't that frustrating? Like, doesn't that make you a little bit angry? Like, don't you just feel compelled to insist on some kind of reform? Well, Capon suggests... That if that tax collector enters into the same space, in the same condition, praying the same prayer, that God is going to respond in the same way. Because that tax collector is in the same condition. He's just as dead in his sin, just as broken and just as lost. And God, the next week, is just as good and just as loving 
and just as gracious, and dare we say merciful. And it was not his performance, the tax collector, that summoned the mercy of God. It was God's goodness, not his magical prayer. So let me just share some thoughts with you. Because if this is true, it means some things for us. First of all, we bring nothing. Nothing that can bring us any measure of justification before God. Nothing. No amount of religious attending, giving to the poor, being nice, praying, reading your Bible. Those things are, are, are good, but they accomplish nothing in terms of our need to be saved from our own sin and brokenness. Uh, secondly, God's mercy apparently is available to anyone and everyone. Religious people do not have a corner on the market. And in fact, it seems in this parable that Jesus is saying that actually being really religious may in fact put you at a disadvantage spiritually because religion and the self-righteousness sometimes that comes with it can just become another means of judging people where we fixate on their brokenness like this Pharisee did and our rightness. And by the way, this is part of the reason why, as we've been reading the Beatitudes, that the power of the kingdom so often comes to and flows through the people that Jesus is blessing, the poor, the poor in spirit, the hungry, the mourning. Why? Because they're broken. They're broken. And the people, the not poor in spirit, the not poor, the full, those who haven't suffered deep loss, they tend to not know or be aware of their brokenness. And so they remain oblivious to their own need for mercy. All right, thirdly, uh, God's acceptance of us isn't grace on the front end and works on the back end, right? That's what, that is part of the radical nature of what Jesus is saying here. It's, it's not, hey, here's this gift and you can have it as long as you spend the rest of your life becoming the kind of person that never needed the gift in the first place. <laughs> no, no, it is grace on the front end. It is grace on the back end. And it is grace every step, every millisecond in between. It is pure mercy, friends. God is just that good. And for those of us religious people who have a hard time with this, we, uh, we need to ask why that is. Uh, fourthly, I think one of the things we can also draw from this is that judgment of others from a place of perceived superiority is toxic. It will eat away at your insides and it will keep you from ever experiencing God in any real ongoing way. Why? Because God hates it. God would rather dine with a sinful and broken man who is honest and aware of his condition than with a pious, self-righteous man who thinks he's good with God because of the good things he does or the bad things he avoids. Apparently, have mercy on me, a sinner, is the only condition necessary to be justified by, by God and enter into the kingdom. That's it. But, 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 no, there's no buts. That is it. The gospel of Jesus, the way of Jesus, it is initiated by mercy, it is sustained by mercy, and it is characterized by mercy from front to end. And the moment, the moment we pick up the gavel, 
and put ourselves in the judge's seat, we are doing something that is antithetical to the kingdom and therefore antithetical to the way of Jesus. So Jesus brings us back to this place again and calls us to take a long look in the mirror because as a Jesus people, as a kingdom people, this should have a profound effect on us. The gospel should have a profound effect on us because what he's saying is those who come to grips with the mercy they require, they're always going to be a people who are moving in the direction of being mercy givers to other people because they know how much they require. They know how much mercy they've received. Right? This is why we love. Why do we love? We love because he first loved us. What else can we do? And this is something that Jesus is going to come back to again and again, even in the Sermon on the Mount, because this is actually an imperative here. Because one of the things that Jesus is saying is that if it doesn't do that to us, uh, if, if we don't come to grips with how much mercy we require and how much mercy we've been given by this incredible, merciful God, then the Spirit of God is not in us. We don't get it yet. We're not in Christ. Christ is not in us. And this is evidenced by being merciless in the way that we treat others, always demanding retribution, always judging other people in a way that looks down on them, belittles them, and props us up. If that is true of us, Jesus is having, has some very stern things he is saying here. It's a very, uh, it's a very dire warning that he's giving us. He said, because my people, oh, my people are different than that. They begin to see people through my father's eyes. And this affects both how they see people and how they treat people. It causes us to be a people who are putting that gavel of judgment down and keep putting it down in order to extend mercy to other people. To be merciful, it implies that we have empathy towards someone. And then that empathy moves us to have compassion on that someone, to that person in need. Uh, empathize, to empathize with somebody comes from the prefix M and the word pathos, which means to suffer. And so to empathize with someone means to enter into their suffering with them, right? You experience it from the inside. You step into their shoes. You, you don't distance yourself. You don't objectify them. Instead, you experience the world from their perspective as much as possible. And when you experience the world from their perspective, it moves you then to compassion. And the word compassion comes from the prefix come, which means to come alongside of. And then again, the word pathos, which means suffering. And so we suffer alongside them. Friends, this is the way of mercy. It is refusing to separate ourselves or pass judgment. Instead, we see them as beloved. We enter into their story we insist on being a people who see the sacredness of each and every person. In spite, sometimes especially in spite of their behavior. So one last story and then I'm done. A few weeks ago, my wife Megan and I were at the grocery store and we saw a gal who's been working there for a long time, recognized her. I walked past her, gave her a smile, and she didn't acknowledge my presence. 
which should not be a big deal. <laughs> I cannot emphasize that enough. Uh, she's working, uh, but but in my own whatever is broken inside of me, like it kind of miffed me. Like I immediately jumped into this judgmental posture. I'm like, wow, uh, she's pleasant today, you know. Did somebody skip customer service training day? Because I'm pretty sure that's not in there. You know, as if she somehow owed me something in that moment, which, by the way, she doesn't. But that was my reaction. And the funny thing is, is I turned around the corner and was off to get toilet paper and didn't give it another thought. I was that quick to pass judgment and that quick to move on. Uh, Megan, however, saw the same woman and thought, man... She's here an awful lot. And, I mean, this this gal's got to be 75. And, you know, she's working lots of hours stocking shelves. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not easy work. And so, Megan said, Boy, do they ever give you a break around here? Do you ever get a day off? And by the time Megan caught up with me a few minutes later in another aisle, uh, she had tears running down her cheeks and she could barely speak uh, because the gal in response to Megan shared with her my daughter just died I'm working overtime to save up money to try to give her a funeral and if that doesn't change your perspective in a split second you know whatever that broken thing inside me is just wanted to pass judgment in a split second and go about my day. Something that I think all of us do hundreds of times a day, perhaps without knowing it. I see a woman and I don't see a story or a human. My posture is that she somehow owes me something and I didn't get that something precisely when I wanted it, precisely when I expected it. I pass judgment and move on. Megan sees a person created in the image of God and she reaches out in judgment I assumed the worst of this woman and in mercy Megan in that moment assumed the best and that that is what mercy does it assumes the best it believes the best about a person it gives the best regardless of what that person does or doesn't do because that is what gives uh, God gives us in spite of what we do or don't do. By one of the most profound truths for us as kingdom people that I think Jesus is highlighting in this parable is that as kingdom people, we are allowed just one opinion about others. And that is to agree with God that they were worth Jesus dying for. And friends, that's it. That's it. Any other judgment from someone who hasn't invited us to speak into their life is anti-Jesus, it is anti-kingdom, and therefore anti-Christ. We are to be a people who are marked by mercy. This should be the way that we shine in the world. Right, Pope Francis, he said, look, a little mercy makes the world less cold and more just. Sounds like something else I've read, Matthew 9, verses 12 and 13. Go figure out what this scripture means. I'm after mercy not religion. J.K. Chesterton said that we are called as God's people to be a people who walk the world as the pardon of God. 
Why? Because that is what we've received. And so that is what we get to be invited to give and to pay forward. You know, perhaps this year when things get ugly and when the culture of outrage continues to do what the culture of outrage does, maybe, just maybe, our motto ought to be that of James, the brother of Jesus, who writes this in the second chapter of this epistle. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May it be so. Grace and peace, friends.